It's literally the matchmaking day. It's literally the go and choose a bride day. It's the go put on your dopest white outfit, go dance in the vineyard, and go get selected by a man. And I wish we had that day today. I'm all for dancing in the fields. My name is Adela Kochav. And I'm Mariam Waba. We are the Daughters of Diaspora. And this is Americanish. Welcome back to Americanish and happy Valentine's Day. It's only right that we talk about all things love this week. But of course, we have to do it the Americanish way, which means we're also talking history and faith. Today, we're going to cover the history of Valentine's Day, the way it's celebrated across cultures, dating apps, soulmates, and whether we should be striving for unconditional love. We are both wearing red today in honor of Valentine's Day, if you're watching along on YouTube. So let's get to it. Mariam, take it away with the history. Let's do it. I'm so excited. (laughs) The history of the holiday and the story of its patient saint is shrouded in mystery. What we do know is that February has been long celebrated as a month of romance and that St. Valentine's Day, as we know it today, contains remnants of both Christian and ancient Roman tradition. But who was St. Valentine, and how did he become associated with the holiday of love? There have been several St. Valentines across Christian history, so there are a couple of different stories as how the holiday came to be. One famous legend has it that Valentine was a Roman priest in the 3rd century. When Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers, he outlawed marriage for young, unattached men. Valentine continued to perform marriages in secret, and when his defiance was discovered, he was put to death. According to another legend, a martyred Valentine might have sent the first Valentine's Day card. In that version, Valentine fell in love while in prison with a girl who visited him. Before his death, he sent her a letter signed, From Your Valentine an expression that has been carried down through the ages. So while this is um, a Christian origin holiday, it's clearly been adopted throughout the West and beyond as a day of love and romance. So um, growing up, we, you know, I went to Jewish school for everyone who is relatively new here. We didn't have Valentine's Day widespread in school. So it's not like the way that you see in TV shows that everyone's asking someone to be their Valentine. That, That didn't really happen in my school. Actually, they would specifically tell us that it is a Christian holiday that we should not be celebrating. But... Don't think that us Jews are stuck without a day of love. We do have something similar. So we have something called Tu B'Av, which is usually um, in August. It's actually August 1st this year, which is the Jewish day of love. It's um, not exactly a religious holiday. It's also not exactly a secular holiday. It hasn't been recognized by the rabbinate in Israel or by secular society as the government's Um, you know, a governmental holiday, but it is recognized by secular society overall. And um, the origin of Tuba Av, which they say is the, um, should be the happiest day, second only to Yom Kippur, um, is when women used to dress in white, unmarried women used to go out and dance in the fields. And it was a day of matchmaking for all the leftover women who were unmarried. So um, that's that's a fun little side note. But there's a couple of um, you know theories as to why specifically this day. They say, for example, one theory says that um, on Tuba Av, the Pharisees, which were the rabbinic Jews, uh, were victorious over the Sadducees, which were assimilating Jews. Um, they also say it was when members of the tribe of Benjamin were allowed to intermarry into other tribes 
tribes again because apparently there had been an edict against them. Um, some people say it's um, the death of the generation that had fled Egypt um, after uh, Passover. So again, there's a, there's a lot of different um, different theories as to why specifically this day, but it was instituted during the second temple period, marking the beginning of the grape harvest. And if you want, I can quote just directly from, um, from the Mishnah, it says that there is no better day for the people of Israel than the 15th of Av, since these are the days of the daughters of Jerusalem go out dressed in white and dance in the vineyards. I love that. And then they say, this is still in the Mishnah, young man, consider who you will choose to be your wife. <laughs> so um <laughs> it's literally the matchmaking day it's literally the go and choose a bride day it's the go put on your dopest white outfit go dance in the vineyard and go get selected by a man and i wish we had that day today i'm all for dancing in the fields wearing white waiting for a man i think wearing, yeah we should bring it back <laughs> that should be the first american-ish in life meetup we just all yeah. wear white <laughs> we, we all first- wear white We'll dance in a field. We'll rent out a field. We will find a field somewhere in Manhattan. Yeah, in Manhattan. We'll just go to Central Park. That's we'll go the to Central field. Park. Yeah, but again, that's that's all the way in August, and that's like the the equivalent that we might have in the Jewish world to to Valentine's Day. But Valentine's Day again has been adopted, and there are similar holidays across cultures. So, what does Valentine's Day look like in Egypt? There's okay. I want to get to Egypt, but first I want to mm-hmm. point out. You use the phrase leftover women, and I think oh that's gosh. hilarious because it's not the first time you use it, used it. I think there's another episode. We should have like a treasure hunt, like people finding things hunt. that crazy things we've said in past episodes. Well, if I could just I hop like- into leftover women, um, I, I don't remember what context we talked about, but we did talk about it. Apparently in China, this is a thing. Apparently there's a marketplace. If you're a woman, I think over 30 or something in China who's unmarried, they call you a leftover woman and they pretty much like, put your picture in this marketplace and people can come and like shop for a wife because you're the leftover women. It's super problematic, super sexist. That's why I have the term. Again, I did not coin the term for everyone who's listening who might be a leftover woman. You and I both, you and I both. So I feel you. <laughs> I'm really glad. I'm really glad we just closed that. We did not coin the term leftover women. We did women. not. No, I think that's we did not. Good, good for our careers too. Good for our Anyways, careers. <laughs> um, so you, another thing I just picked up on, you said, so this day... First, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. Tu Ba'av? Tu Ba'av, yeah. Tu Ba'av, okay. Uh, you said it's the second happiest day on the Jewish calendar to Yom Kippur. I thought Yom Kippur was supposed to be a sad day. Uh, so, no, not sad. It's supposed to be a serious day. It's it's a serious day where we're atoning for our sins. But um, the Gemara actually tells us that it's a day of joy because we should recognize how lucky we are and how joyous we should be that we do have the opportunity to atone, atone for our sins. So while Yom Kippur is a serious day, it is a happy day. It's a day of uh, new beginning. It's a day of atonement. And it's a day where we recognize we have the opportunity to atone. Very cool. I did not know that. Mm. I just knew it was a somber day, rather, Mm -hmm. because of how it's celebrated in Israel. Okay, uh, Valentine's Day in Egypt. There's actually two uh, Valentine's Days in Mm. Egypt. Uh, The first one is the Western Valentine's Day celebrated today, February 14th, and that's because of westernization and how um, it works is people in other countries like the West and like Western culture, although they might not be able to admit it or or they hate or dislike some aspects of Western culture, society, politics, um, Westernizing is a social uh, qualifier, if you will, and, and celebrating things like 
Christmas, even though it's a Christian holiday and celebrating things like uh, Valentine's Day is become a part of the culture. Um, I even, just to go on a tangent a little bit, you know how the Christian, the, the Western um, marriages, you stand at the altar and there's a priest mm-hmm. and you may now kiss the bride. That's not a thing that happens in Arab weddings. But just recently, there was a very famous celebrity couple who got married and they're neither of them are Christian. They're both practicing Muslims and they still held their wedding on like a, you know, temple that looked like a Christian temple with a guy telling them, you know, you know, may now kiss the bride. So westernization creeps into culture and society in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is Valentine's Day. Um, So obviously today in Egypt, I'm sure there's red everywhere, teddy bears, chocolates, flowers all across Cairo and surrounding cities. Um, The other day that is the Valentine's Day equivalent is actually an Egyptian holiday called Eid al-Hub, which translates to the holiday of love. And that's celebrated on November 4th. Um, And they're essentially the same. There's maybe a few differences in how they're celebrated, but, um, and by that I mean November 4th tends to be more uh, both romance and friendship love, whereas February 14th comes with the heavy association that it's a romantic love. Um, And there's a lot of criticisms of both. Um, Obviously, while Egypt is uh, westernized and Western in a lot of ways, it's still a Muslim conservative country in a lot of other ways. Um, And you have commentators and sheikhs and Muslim critics, uh, clerks, excuse me, that uh, come out against the public celebration of holidays like uh, Valentine's Day. One, because it's Western, and two, because it kind of breaks down some of the Western, excuse me, some of the conservative thought that things like love shouldn't be celebrated in the public space and relationships, especially ones out of wedlock. Um, so I mm. always find that this time uh, brings a lot of conversation on national TV about um, about holidays and Western holidays, especially being celebrated in Arab countries. Um Speaking of West, actually, let me backtrack. Before we do that, let's do Mexico. What? How does? How is? Um, how is Valentine's Day celebrated in Mexico? So, actually, similarly, I love that you said that it focuses on like a, a brotherly love or like a friendship kind of love, uh, because that's exactly how it is in Mexico. So, in Mexico, we do have Valentine's Day on February fourteenth. It is a Catholic country, so it does adopt pretty much every single Christian holiday. Um, But in Mexico, of course, yes, there's the romantic aspect of Valentine's Day and the chocolates and the roses and the teddy bears and all that's beautiful. But at least from what I remember when I was there growing up is that it's not just Valentine's Day, the day of love. It's el día de amor y amistad, which means the day of love and friendship, which is so beautiful because I I, I remember again, like we were talking about before, like on TV shows, there's boys who ask girls to be their Valentines in American secular culture. But the way it works in Mexico is you, you bring a snack for everyone in your class, you know, you you get heart-shaped lollipops and everyone together wears pink and red and it's a day to celebrate friendship. And that's something I really like because as much as I love the romance and all of that's great, I think it's just something that younger kids, especially elementary, middle school kids, they shouldn't have to worry about their romantic interests yet, right? It, it romanticizes them, I think, too soon. Not that it's a bad thing. I just think it's not a great thing. And I love the idea of focusing it on as a day of friendship. Today is a day that we celebrate friendship, and you're grateful for the friendships that you have. Um, I think it's a very healthy 
message for kids to grow up with. I think it's really nice when that's what your teacher's talking about, that's what your mom's talking about, that's what your classmates are talking about, and everyone's celebrating each other instead of this, um, you know, Western idea, which, uh, you know, it's portrayed on TV where it's like, I have to ask someone to be my Valentine. What does that even mean? Does that mean like, want to be my date for the day? Does that mean want to be my girlfriend? Like, does that mean want to be my special friend? Like, I have no idea what be my Valentine even means. And in Mexico, you don't have to worry about that. Everyone's each other's Valentine. So beautiful. Equality. It really is. And I do remember just bringing that up made me remember, I think it was elementary school, maybe fourth or fifth grade, Mm. uh, a lot of the kids' parents would make the kids ask everybody to be their Valentine. Obviously, they wouldn't, you know, go up and propose to be your Valentine or anything, but I remember getting, uh, like, cards with the heart-shaped lollipops, and people's moms and parents would bring cards for everybody. So kids would give out 25 or 30 Valentine's Day cards, and it was actually very cute, and it kind of took a lot of the pressure off kids to like have a romantic mm-hmm. Valentine. And I know kids these days are like sped up in a lot of ways. I feel like we always yeah. sound like grandmas on this we show. We sound like, like grandmas on the show. Kids these days. Kids these days. <laughs> but you know but, what I mean? Like yeah, back, yeah. back when we were growing up, it was there was a little bit of innocence to it that I think has become lost and muddled in that mm-hmm. Because they're on social media, because they're on TikTok, there's a lot more layers and they're exposed to so much more um, stuff overall. But yeah. even in this, in just in this like slice of life, um, they are worried about finding a Valentine and they are comparing themselves to the other girl who had, you know, three boys ask her to be mm-hmm. Valentine versus me. And it just complicates it and removes yeah. a lot of the innocent pureness of childhood and, and just seeing people um, and identifying friendships before anything else. And those are the relationships that, you know, go, go for, go on for years and not just asking somebody to be their Valentine. Yeah. And, and, and on, on that same point, um, I think that technology has definitely affected the way that children view love, but it's definitely also affected the way that adults try to find love. And that of course is the advent of the dating app. The dating app. Yeah. Oh, I want and to say that again dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> the big question when when people talk about dating apps, whether it's, you know, on podcasts or in friend groups or, or at work for some reason, if you do that in your free time, um, <laughs> is do they work? And that's been the question since their inception. Um, so what do you think, Adela? Do they work? So I personally think yes, but you have to be using them the right way. And for me, that means that you have to have intentional matches and you have to um, open the conversation, like, you know, either a phone call or actually meet in person within a week of talking to them through the app. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that with dating apps, there's there's a couple of things going on, but mainly there's so much variety. There's just so many people, right? And yeah, um, it's very easy to just match with a ton of people and talk to a ton of people at the same time. And next thing you know, you're super, super spread thin. Um, you're not actually going to end up meeting up with any of these people. Some people you just swipe on because you liked their picture or because they had a dog. And those aren't really good reasons to to swipe right on someone, you know? Um, for for everyone listening who doesn't know, swipe right is when you like someone, swipe left is when you don't. Um, But I do think it works. I actually, the last serious relationship I was in, we met through Hinge and it just shows you a lot of um, filters that you can have. So I had someone in the age range I was looking for. We had compatible education. We had compatible jobs and aspirations. Um, we were both Jewish and everything was really great on paper. Again, it wasn't, 
um, the right relationship and it's time. It was a, a good relationship while I had it. But I do think that if you use dating apps the right way, it will lead you to find a person who can be right for you. I, I don't think that most people use it the right way, though. Yeah. And I even think the question itself, do they work, is somewhat of a flawed question because what does work mean? Are you yeah. on there to find a long-term partner? Are you on there to find a friend for whatever reason? Are you on there <laughs> because of hookup culture and you're just looking mm -hmm. to hook up? And I think once you answer that question for yourself, um, then you can begin to figure out how you're going to use this piece of technology. Um, the same question, we asked the same question last week about AI and how does mm -hmm. that, um, how is our objective define how we use it? How do our goals yeah. define how do we use it? Um, some criticisms of dating apps. Um, I think on, I saw on TikTok a couple of weeks ago this three-month rule or three-month theory mm. where the first three months are like the honeymoon phase and everybody's on their best behavior and you guys are getting along really well. And with dating apps, um, you get that at the very beginning. You get those three months of bliss, if you will. And then that's where when things start to go south and you you start to show a little bit of your quirks and there's more mm -hmm. conflict. And instead of learning how to conflict resolute, instead of learning how to compromise, you you can get back on the dating app yeah. and swipe and find your next three months and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I think that has hurt our culture in a lot of ways because it has made it easily accessible to find an alternative to instead yeah. of putting in hard work, you just start something new. And I think people perpetually do that. Do you find that happening? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my mom says this constantly just about dating in Manhattan. She says there's so many options that you always think that you could find the next best thing. So as soon as you hit like a little bump in the road, you're like, oh, well, why am I even putting in the work? I could just find something better. And that's a very dangerous mentality. I've seen a lot of friends fall to that mentality. I've I've been guilty of that mentality where, you know, sometimes you have something good, but instead of working at it, you just think you could find something um, that fits better. And again, there there is no perfect relationship. But what one, one very interesting thing that we were talking about, um, you and I, the other day was the app, the algorithm as the new matchmaker. Because back in the day, people used to go to a matchmaker, a shadchan in the Jewish world, um, a you know, matchmaker in the secular world and tell them what they're looking for, tell them about themselves and hope that that person can find them a match, right? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, right? Uh, fiddler on the roof. We love this. Um, and nowadays, that's exactly what you have with dating apps, right? You have input. You put in your information about yourself. You put information of what you're looking for. And even more, the apps learn about your swiping, right? It, it picks up on your swiping methods and it knows like if you like a particular type of profession or a particular type of education, it'll start showing you more of that to get closer and closer to your perfect match. And um, in a way, it might be more accurate than an in-person matchmaker. But at the same time, there's a very big difference between algorithms and statistics and personality. So um, the, the pros of having an in-person matchmaker is that they actually know you, right? Like they met you, they, they had a conversation with you, they know your energy and they can tell what you're overstretching, what you're overstressing and understressing and the kind of person that you actually are looking for. They could see what you're passionate about. The, the conversation goes away from the typical box questions that you could just click off on an app. They might say, well, what are you studying? And instead of just putting in a two word answer, you can actually talk about it, right? So, um, it takes away that human aspect that, you know, maybe we could call it human error, but it, 
I call it the the humanity of matchmaking because you're matching two humans with each other. You're not really looking at statistics and everything could be a perfect match on paper and it might not be a match in in person. Um, so I, I agree. I think it's it's just too easy to hop back into an app. You would never go to a matchmaker after they introduce you with your eighth or ninth match and say, nope, find me another because you're you're kind of embarrassed, number one. And number two, um, you you could start thinking, maybe I should find another way of dating as opposed to the dating apps. You can even be in a relationship and just unpause it for a night to see what's around. That's super dangerous. That's right. super, super dangerous. Right. And I, I really like how you brought up um, the matchmaker because I think that some of the people in our age group will see that a matchmaker as really old-fashioned. And mm. like, what do you mean somebody's going to match me? And it kind of comes off icky and a little like arranged marriage-y. Um, mm. But it's actually like the high-tech version of the dating app. Like we in a lot of Low ways. Low-tech. No, no. It's like, it's it's the luxury. Like if dating the apps. The luxury of, yeah. Right. It's It's like if you were to upgrade one tier above the dating app, it would be a matchmaker because you're mm-hmm. using AI or you're using an algorithm, you're using an algorithm in the dating app. And now like take the algorithm away. It's just somebody like getting to know you, getting to know your needs and wants and quirks and all the awful things about you. And then trying to find something to match <laughs> you with. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think the old fashioned matchmaker is like, the the apps on steroids, like a better yeah. version of the app. Have you ever watched uh, Indian Matchmaking on Netflix? Yes, I have, and it's a phenomenal show. I haven't I watched the second season, so don't spoil. But I heard that Aparna found someone, so that's all. Girl, I care. there's three seasons. You have to catch up. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's, it's great. I love it. Actually, am I wrong? I think there's three seasons, but I could be wrong. Anyway, like that show is great because it it delves into people finding partners, people finding matches without making like a weird big deal out of it. Like mm-hmm. there's biodata and they explain what a biodata is. It's all the facts about you and what you're looking for and kind of move on. They don't really make it into like this weird thing where you're making a checklist and the protagonist of the show, the matchmaker, uh, Auntie Seema from Mumbai, like she's just a badass. Like she just, she gets it. She knows what... Mm-hmm it means to find a partner. And she has this saying like 70% is okay. Like make the list, tell me the things that you want. Mm -hmm. And 60, 70% is okay. And she has to talk these people out of trying to get 100% of their list because Mm -hmm. some people get their 100% of of their checklist and they're still not satisfied. They're still not happy because of that je ne sais quoi that's missing. Um, yep. Now I'm just, this is turning into an Auntie Seema podcast, <laughs> but I love that woman. I think she's excellent. Um, well, I guess that takes me to the next question, right? We keep saying like, look for the 60, 70%. Like, do, do you think that there are soulmates? Do you believe in the concept of soulmates? So I've thought long and hard about this, both in prepping this episode and just, it's been a thing that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years. Um, and, I'm I, I tend to hyper intellectualize things. If if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have caught on to that by uh season three. And I try to collect data on the question the big questions of life and try to find an answer for them. So in asking myself, are soulmates real? Uh taking into everything that I've experienced in life and everything that I've seen around with family, peers, friends, um, I would love for the answer to be yes, because isn't that sweet? Like, 
and it kind of fits into a lot of our theology. Like God made you and he made somebody to compliment you and your goal is to find them. And, you know, you have a fairy tale and you live happily ever after. The answer that my mind is telling me is yes, but. Um, the but is that, the but is that, the but is that like they do <laughs> the exist. Yeah, they, they do <laughs> exist, but they're not found. They're made. Um, and to quote another amazing show, The Good Place. If you guys haven't watched it, you should totally check it out. It's a great like philosophical comedy, uh, satirical take on a very heavy topic. Um, but there's a scene where one of the one of the main characters is asking another character, like, are soulmates real? And he goes, if soulmates do exist, they're not found, they're made. People meet, they get a good feeling, and they get to work building a relationship. Um, and I think that's, I, I watched the show mm -hmm. a million times in the past, like two and a half, maybe three years. And that quote really sticks out to me as like a great takeaway from the show. Um, soulmates are not found, they're made. You have to put in the work. You have to be willing to make sacrifices. And we'll get to a little bit more of the sacrificial take on love a little bit later in the episode. But I, I think it's a really beautiful sentiment to uh, walk around with. Like you have to put in hard work. You have to learn how to compromise. You have to learn how to conflict resolute if you want to find this perfect match. You create it. You don't just find it. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I in, in Judaism, we have um, a concept of a nasib or a besheret, which means that the person who is, who is made for you, right? It, it is this concept of soulmate. And some people really do take it to be literally like that is, that is your person. That is your, your chosen one um, that was made for you. But, um, and, you know, some people believe that, you know, when you come into this world, the soul is divided into seven parts and you have to find the other parts of your soul. And there, there, there's a lot of, um, a theory, there's a lot of Kabbalah behind it, but the best explanation I've ever gotten was, um, I had a principal in school growing up. He was the rabbi, he was the head of school and, uh, his parents, and this is an older man. We're talking like, this is a man like in his like late fifties, um, his parents divorced late in life. So like he was already a full adult with a family and children. And then his parents, the grandparents of his children got divorced. And um, my parents were going through a divorce. So I sat down and I talked to him and I said, well, you know, as, as someone whose parents got divorced later in life, what, what's your thought on this soulmate situation? And I like how he explained it. And again, there's, I'm not purporting to speak for all Jewish thought. This is just how it was explained to me. And it's the one I think makes the most sense. Um, is that your nasib is your, your perfect match, but your perfect match changes as you change. It's not like it's predetermined who you were supposed to marry and who you were supposed to be because people are presented with choices and people are presented with paths. So who would have been perfect for me in high school is very different from who would be perfect for me today, right? If you go through a period of growth, then the person who was perfect for you before your growth, the person who was your perfect complement before that growth is no longer the same person that would be um, perfect for you afterwards. And that's true. He explained, it, it could be that you married the person that was perfect for you at the time and you worked and you made that relationship work as much as you could. And it could be that you, you grew apart during that relationship. And that's how he explained divorce to me in, um, a religious concept. And, and again, I, I do love the good place. I think it's a phenomenal show. And, um, I, I also, I, I don't believe that you just have a person roaming this earth and you're just supposed to find them and, and have this perfect happily ever after. I think you're right. I think that soulmates are made. And I think that soulmates um, are, are people that 
you've grown to, that you have to grow in order to see them and appreciate them to be your soulmate. And then once you're together, you have to be able to grow together. Um, you know, growth doesn't end when you find your perfect match. Growth only continues and is expedited when you find your match. And hopefully you'll grow in a way that it makes that match even more perfect for you. And, um, right. I mean, I had a, I had a phenomenal year just like in terms of like my, my personal life, my mom got remarried, my brother got engaged and is soon to be married. He's actually doing his civil marriage, um, later on this week. Um, I had one of my best friends just got engaged. Another one of my really good friends just got engaged last week. So I'm surrounded by all this happiness and it's reinforcing my idea that you find the person who's right for you, right? And when you find that person and you're happy and you're on clouds, you understand that this is going to be a marriage that you're going to work towards for the rest of your life. And it's, it's a project you're taking on with someone together. Like when we started Americanish, right? We understood that we're taking on a podcast and we're taking on a show and we knew that was going to be hard work and we knew that was going to be time commitment. And we thought, knew that was going to be recording and this. And we want to make that work and we work towards it. And that's a relationship. And I think that when it comes to love, it's very easy to fall into this, oh, it'll be perfect and it'll be flawless and it'll be easy breezy one, two, three. But no, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be even harder than starting a podcast if you can believe it. <laughs> yeah, if, if you can believe it. That's actually really sweet. I haven't I haven't thought about that at all. That's a very nice sentiment. And it's it's in a lot of ways really harmful to believe in the idea of soulmates as as simple as they sometimes are presented because when things go wrong, when you're presented with conflict, it's very easy to be like, well, if they were my soulmate, we wouldn't have this problem. Or if we were meant to be together, it would be mm -hmm. much easier. And I think a lot of the romance that we see in, in media, social and mainstream, tends to push that narrative that everything kind of just falls into place and you meet the right person and everything is you know, flowers and lilies and you have a beautiful wedding. And for a lot of people, for most people, for all people, that's just not the case. There's so many steps to getting to a place where you both understand each other, uh, know all the little things that annoy the crap out of you about each other and still choose to love and accept each other, not despite your flaws, but because of them. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. that's really beautiful. I think so too. I think so too. Is uh, Nasib mm, yeah, a Hebrew word? I'm just curious. Nasib? It's a good question. It definitely derives from Hebrew. I don't know the entomology, and I'm going to have to look into that. Uh, but Besheret, I, I'm pretty sure that Nasib is either it's either Hebrew or Yiddish. Um, and then Besheret would come from the, the idea of chosen. It's like the, mm. the person who was chosen for you. Um, and actually, it's, it's, it's funny because... Um, so we all, of course, know The Bachelor, but now there's a Jewish version here in New York that um, is hosted on the software center on the Upper East Side called The Besheret, which is like The Bachelor, but Jews. Um, and it's just like a night where they do like kind of like this like live uh, bachelor kind of situation. They pick a bachelor in the community and they pick a couple of girls and they ask each other questions. And it, it's interesting to watch, you know, people you know suddenly be on that stage. Um, but yeah, be before we turn to, to an, a different pivot, I just want to say that marriages are hard and they take hard work. And we, we talked about this a little bit in past episodes, um, maybe in the Syrian dating episode. Divorce is something that's always been stigmatized in my community. And of course, my, my parents that get divorced and a lot of kids in my community whose parents were divorced and they, they would, you know, reach out to me and I would reach out to them and it would be kind of like this, we're going through something that's taboo together. But just in the last two years, I've had so many 
friends, family members that unfortunately were married and divorced within a year and a half, two years of their marriage. Um, a surprising amount for, for a community where divorce was stigmatized. And I think it just goes to show that a lot of people did have this idea uh, that, that was just very simple of what marriage is. And, and people are realizing that, you know, sometimes you make a mistake and it's also okay to make a mistake. Um, it's better to realize that you made a mistake. It's, it's better to work as hard as you possibly can. There's a difference between the dating app um, fatigue that we talked about where it's like, oh, this isn't working. Let me hop on the dating app. That's very different from being in a relationship, working hard, introducing each other to your families, wanting it to work, and then just recognizing this is never going to work. And no one should stay into something that they don't want to be in. Um, at the same time, no one should be striving for the perfection that doesn't exist where you end up um, again, with, with this Tinder fatigue and hinge fatigue and bumble fatigue, where you're just looking for the next, looking for the next, looking for something that doesn't exist. Um, but that's just, you know, the, the concept of nasib, share it the way I understand it to be. Um, but you know, love isn't something new. Love is something that's talked about always. It's talked about in the Bible. Um, but what, what does the Bible say about love? Um, well, I, so I asked about Nasib because it's an Arabic word too. So I'm sure it, there might hmm. be a Hebrew version of it just because of Semitic languages and how that works. Um, and the word Nasib for us, and tell me if it's the same for you guys is like, it's both about romantic love, but it also is about everything else. Like if you didn't get a job that you wanted, like your yes. mom would say, like, that's not your Nasib, like it'll come along. Like it's not, it's not part of what God wrote for you. Is that the same too? Yes. And so now I'm so happy about this. We talked about this in another episode. I think the, the, the language episode, I grew up as a Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican Jew. So I don't know what's Spanish. I don't know what's Arabic. I don't know what's Hebrew. I just know the way that I grew up. And then sometimes I'll say something and an Ashkenazi Jew be, will be like, oh, like that's not us. And I'm like, oh, I guess it's a Sephardic thing. And then I'll say something. And then, you know, a, a person from Mexico will be like, oh, that's not us. And I'm like, oh, I guess that was like a, a Jewish or Arab thing. And it's always like, it's one of the three. So I'm happy that Nasib comes from Arabic. And yes, we use it in the exact same way. Like if you didn't get a job, it wasn't your Nasib. If, you know, it, something didn't work out, it wasn't your nasib. Um, we also say kapara. We, we're very, you know, not superstitious, but we have um, we have a very, like, everything was meant to be outlook mm -hmm. on life. So if we say it wasn't your nasib, sometimes we'll all just say kapara, which means it's for the better. Like, this was right. meant to be. It's for the better. This happened because something else was supposed to happen that was worse, and this is, like, the best outcome or, you know, something along those lines. So um, I guess nasib isn't a Jewish thing. Nasib comes from the Arab side of my culture, but Besheret is definitely a Jewish thing, and I think that that's more of an Ashkenazi thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, mm -hmm. shifting gears to shifting a little gears. bit of Bible. Um, Bible. So let's Bible this. Let's Bible it. Um, so there's so many things we can talk about when it comes to love in the Bible, how it's portrayed, how it's talked about, and it would take us probably hundreds of hours if we were to sit here and go through everything. Um, I do want to talk about uh, a verse in 1 Corinthians, which you might have heard on an Instagram reel or a TikTok, or if you went to like a Christian wedding, uh, a lot of people will include it in their vows. Um, and it's in 1 Corinthians and it reads, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And it kind of keeps going, and I, I'll expand on it in a little bit. But I think this verse is often used when talking about love, whether romantic, parental, uh, platonic, um, because it gives you kind of like a really good concept of what is love and what isn't. Uh, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
exactly it's not rude or arrogant it's not mm-hmm. stuck in its ways it does not resent it does not uh rejoice it does not celebrate when you do something wrong um but rejoices with the truth and i think it's a really good starting point for young people like us to when trying to figure out what it means to love what it means to be loved in a healthy um, manner to kind of go back to this verse and figure out like kind of use it as a questionnaire like a buzzfeed <laughs> quiz like am i being patient and kind am i boastful am i rude mm. and arrogant am i rejoicing at other people's wrongdoings and kind of ask yourself about what you're experiencing because of others and mm-hmm. um i don't know i think it's a really good starting point what do you think I, I think so too. I think I, I, one thing, I think it's interesting that you said that we should use it as a buzzfeed quiz for ourselves, right? Like, am I patient? Am I kind? As opposed to, is he being patient? Is he being kind? Right, so it just goes right. to show um, the, the, the level of responsibility that people should be taking for their relationships as opposed to just thinking that they're experiencing a relationship as opposed to they're actively contributing to a relationship. And um, that's, that's one thing I, I really love about secular um secular marriages, I guess, or not secular, I guess, Christian marriages, uh, the idea of vows, right? Um, people say this in their vows. People are, are like promising something to each other. And that's something that we don't really have in Judaism. We have a ketubah, which is essentially a, a marriage contract that's it, it intertwined with a dowry and it outlines the duties of the husband to the wife and the duties of the wife to the husband and you both sign it. But it's not that moment that you get when you look into the eyes of your your person and and you 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 give your vows and um you know just just even like hearing you like read it it's like wow like that's so nice to hear someone say and and tell you that like I will be patient I will be kind I will not be envious I will be like that that must be really nice and to feel that for someone else um but yeah I think I think you're right I think it's a really it's a really good thing to have in mind when you're you're looking for maybe instead of the checklist of does this person fit into my life looking to the checklist of how does this person treat me and how do I treat that person Right, right. And do do Jews ever, like, I know you just said you guys don't do vows, but is there a moment where, even if it's super secular, like, where you promise each other things, like, kind of vows? Because that's all a vow is, right? Yeah, I mean, people can do that separately on their own. Um, and we could talk a lot about the way that Mexican weddings are, the way that Jewish weddings are, the way that Mexican Jewish weddings are, the way that Syrian weddings are, the way that Mexican Syrian Jewish weddings are. Um, but um, at least Mexican weddings, they'll separate their civil wedding and their religious wedding. So actually my brother, for example, he's having his civil wedding in two weeks and then he's having his religious wedding in May. And the reason for that is here in the United States, religious marriage is recognized as valid. So you get religiously married in your chuppah, in your synagogue, whatever it is. And then you go to city hall, you pretty much prove that you were married and they give you your marriage certificate, right? Because they're recognizing your marriage is valid. As opposed to in Mexico, it's a Catholic country, so they don't recognize religious marriage as the institutionalized marriage. So first you have to get civilly married and you get your quote-unquote license to wed, and then you can get religiously Mm -hmm. married after. So um, during that secular ceremony, which is officiated by a judge and you have witnesses sign a paper, which is, um, again, a a civil proceeding, um, that's where some Jewish couples will decide to say vows to each other. Um, it's an individual choice. I think it's really beautiful um, even to just say a couple of words to each other, or even to, to write a letter to each other and have you read it on your wedding night, whatever it is. Um, I, I do I do like the idea of that. But no, in, in, in Jewish marriage, it's, it's a little bit different. We have the ketubah, you do have witnesses, but it's not really... 
individualized. It's not individualized to the individual couple. Um, it changes very little between Sephardic or Ashkenaz. It's just very standard. And it's still very beautiful. Actually, my favorite thing is, and and sorry for the younger listeners, in the Ketuvah, it literally says that the man must sexually satisfy his wife. And pretty much he could demand it on like on demand. She could be like now. And he has to be like now. And she could like point at the Ketuvah and be like now. And you owe this to me. And that's apparently allowed. And it's because he's not allowed to deprive her of having children. So that's a cute fun fact about Jewish marriage. But um, yeah, so no, we, we don't have that point. People could do it on their own, but it's not institutionalized in Judaism. I don't know how to move on from that, honestly. So <laughs> I'm just going to steamroll ahead. <laughs> but that's good to know. I think that should yeah. be included in Christian marriages as well. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> feminism. Yeah, feminism. Um, I want to talk a little bit about orthodoxy's definition of love. And I- I'm not going to get too deep because, again, I'm not a theologian. But I think it's very interesting how the orthodox churches deal with love, present love. Um, and I- I'm... Like I've said about a lot of things when we talk about Christianity on this show, I'm not quite familiar or well-versed in Western Christianity, so I can't really differentiate them, but I can tell you a little bit about orthodoxy. Um, So in the creation story, when God creates Adam and Eve, he thus creates an intimate relationship with them and they with each other. Um, If anybody is really curious about the creation story, Ari Lam, a wonderful rabbi, does great Uh, Twitter threads about like very specific things in the Torah and the Bible. Um, And he just did a wonderful thread about the serpent in the creation story Mm. and what the serpent is, um, because it kind of, there's so many schools of thought about what it is. Is it sin personified or, you know, snakeified? Um, But he just did a (laughs) wonderful thread kind of digging deep on what the serpent is in the creation story. But anyway, back to, to my point. Um, but after Adam and Eve sin, eat from the forbidden fruit and they fall, they become part of the world and get kicked out of the garden of uh, of Eden. And they slowly, slowly become removed away from God. And that relationship with God that they have becomes strained and becomes very distant. Um, and that love they have for each other and for God, it's kind of like, think of it as a three-way love them as a couple, loving God, God loving them, them loving each other as individuals. Um, that love starts to take a couple of different forms. And in our lifetime, we get to experience love in a, a lot of different forms. Uh, the love of God, the love of our parents, sisters and brothers, the love of our friends, the love of our children, the love of the people you meet in everyday life on the subway when you help somebody uh, carry their stroller as all New Yorkers will forever until the rest of time, um, Mm. and the love of your partner. Um, And all these loves come in so many different shapes, sizes, forms, and how we choose to express that love is very unique, almost like a fingerprint to every individual person. Um, And I'll take us back to that Corinthians verse, um, expand on that a little bit more. The verse in uh, a different part continues, "Love, love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, Love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, And God's love surpasses all other love because it is unconditional love. And in that, I want to take us back to our episode with Bible with Brianda. And there's this moment that we keep referencing in the last couple of episodes about uh, Brianda 
um, she was struggling to come to terms with the idea that God's love is unconditional. Like, how could the all-knowing, all-good, omnipresent deity that made me love me despite of my sins, love me despite of my flaws, love me despite of everything. He just loves me. Um, and I think that's something I struggle with as well. I think a lot of people struggle with it, even if it's not consciously. Um, and I think it's something to wrestle with. It's something to sit down with and really try to understand. Um, I can't say I fully comprehend it or have wrapped myself, wrapped my brain around it. Um, his love does not depend on whether I'm good or bad, whether I deserve to be loved or not. It just is. Um, what do you think? Well, I think this this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Why why is Yom Kippur considered a happy day? And we say it's because we have the the happiness of knowing that we can atone for sin. So I think it goes back to, I think I, I wouldn't say that, you know, God's love is entirely unconditional. Like if you say like, I'm a sinner and I'm going to keep sinning and I feel zero regret, zero remorse, and I'm recognizing this or, you know... Uh, Yes, God loves you unconditionally. I, I don't think at any point God stops loving you. I think that God could be, you know, not mad, just disappointed, as they say, <laughs> which is the worst thing he can be. Um, and we should strive to be better. And he gives us that opportunity and we should be happy as humans. We should be overjoyed as humans that we have that opportunity. But I agree. I think uh, the idea of unconditional love, whether it comes from God or it comes from a relationship or if we, we should even want that in a relationship is is definitely a, a big one to grapple with. Um, I think it's a scary one uh, because I think that when it comes to uh, love, right, we talk about love languages and this and whatever. When I think of love, I think of reciprocation, right? Where you, you know, if you're feeling love, you want to show love. If you show love, you want to feel love back. So if we're being told that God loves us unconditionally, we should love God unconditionally. Be on the law, we should love God unconditionally too. And I think that that can be hard and scary because it takes upon us a, a larger responsibility. Not just do I have to love God and serve God, but now I have to love him unconditionally like he loves me. But the, the great thing about God is that he doesn't operate the way that humans do. Humans are transactional human and God is not, right? So um, whether or not you love God unconditionally, he will love you back unconditionally. And um, unlike Brianda, I don't like dwelling on that because it's scary when you think about the idea he might not love you unconditionally. So, Yeah, it's, it's really... I don't think we think about it enough. I don't think we talk about it enough as a society. Like he loves us unconditionally. Do we love him unconditionally? Do you get mad at God? I certainly do a lot oh, of I times. Do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Make we should score. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a chalk, chalkboard on top of your bed. Like one, God zero. One, Adela, zero. <laughs> um, I think that'd be a really interesting topic. If, if you're listening, mm -hmm. let us know, like, would you like to hear about like, how we process emotions towards deities as human beings and what different religions and faith groups think about that. I'm sure some of the East Asian religions have some interesting perspective on how they uh, communicate or, or are allowed to feel about God. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I want to I wanna take us to the best Americanish time-honored tradition, <laughs> Adela's dating stories. Woo, what do you have yeah. for us? So um, I, as you guys know, date. And when I date, I have good dates. I have bad dates. I have hilarious dates. I have terrible dates that cause anxiety. So um, today I'm going to share one date. It's, it's not a bad date. It's not a good date. It's uh, just a date that happened. It was about two years ago. And let me paint the scene here. It was COVID, which means everything was closed except for Miami. 
So everyone who wanted to date people, especially like young people, like we were like, what are we supposed to do? You cannot date in New York. It's freezing. It's like the middle of January. There's snow outside. Restaurants weren't you letting you eat inside. Very few of them had outdoor structures. So either you go on a date where you go outdoors with a stranger, freeze while you eat pasta while wearing gloves and jackets and it's snowing outside, or you invite a stranger into your apartment and then suddenly that's like moving way too many dates ahead. Um, so a lot of people just went to Miami and I went to Miami and I was dating someone in Miami and we had this cute mini relationship and everything was great. And I was about to go back to New York for a while. And, um, we were smack in the middle of the honeymoon phase where everything was wonderful. So he got a reservation at, um, a exclusive sushi speakeasy on top of the Versace mansion. Now we're talking six seats at this sushi bar. It's a really tiny sushi bar and it's COVID and no one was even like fully used to eating out at restaurants. And, um, you know, we show up and it's super romantic and I'm not going to see him for two weeks. And, um, you know, we're, we're having some drinks and they pass us from the Versace mansion waiting area to the sushi bar. And I sit down and I'm having this wonderful moment with the significant other I was seeing. And across the bar, I just hear, oh my God, Adela. And I'm like, what's going on? And I look up and who do I see? None other than my actual next door neighbor from Deal, New Jersey, my mother's friend, the mother of one of my friends, a fully middle-aged woman and her husband at the Versace mansion on top of the sushi speakeasy. So I'm supposed to be having this very cute, you know, romantic moment with a significant other. And now I suddenly have her in front of me. She's like, no, don't worry. Like, I'm very discreet. I won't tell anyone about this. So who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And he's suddenly being interrogated. And she's like, don't worry, I'm cool. And I'm like, she's clearly not being cool. Um, And it was just very, very funny because of all places. And he was like, um, I was like, oh yeah, you know, that's my neighbor. And he's like, oh, like, you know each other from Deal? I'm like, no, like actually the house next to my house in Deal. Like my actual Oh my next door gosh. neighbor. Like I had to, I left at Deal, New Jersey, all the way to Miami, to the Versace mansion, to a sushi speakeasy, just to see my next door neighbor from Deal, New Jersey. And um, it really shows like one of those small worlds. And it also like helps you realize like sometimes when you enter a new relationship, you're kind of like in this like own world. And like, you forget the fact that the outside world exists. And sometimes you're confronted with that outside world. And it's like, huh, um, you know, you start kind of putting things into perspective. And funny enough, I actually ran into this neighbor again when I was dating a different guy at a coffee place. Like I just like walk into the coffee place and um, I did not expect anyone I knew to be there. And I just walk in, I'm with this other guy I was seeing and she was like, Adela, hi, you're new. What's your name? And I was like, no, please, no. Oh, no. So, anyway, I think this woman's um, following you, Adela. I don't think this is an accident. You'd think, you'd think but um, you know, it just happens to be. We're, we're on the same wavelength. I actually, I adore her. She is phenomenal. I've had phenomenal conversations with her, her husband, their, their riots are hysterical. We have them over for Shabbat dinners. We laugh a ton. Um, but yeah, just, it was a funny moment where I did not expect to see anyone there. And lo and behold, I saw the wonderful face of my mom's friend. So shout lovely out to time. her. Shout out Just to her. Showing up, um, making sure the dates are going well. Just making sure in. the dates are going well. And then and she'll, she'll, she'll check in. And then the best is like, I spoke to my mom the next day. And I was like, so you'll never guess what happened. She's like, I already spoke to her. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I expected that. Um, but on, on that note, we have many, many other date stories that we will not be sharing in today's episode. But we can share if you request it. And we might even share it as part of our subscription-only content. So as you know, Mariam and I have just opened a subscription feature on our Instagram where you get exclusive content that is not released to our general Instagram. You'll have behind the scenes of me and my family, Mariam's travels, our, our work, or this, or our, you know, dating stories and whatnot. So if you want to get some exclusive content, check out our subscription feature today. Anything else? 
That's all. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Chat with you later. Thanks for tuning in to Americanish. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok for exclusive content. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.